everyone. You're watching We Heart Therapy. I'm your host, Annabelle Bugatti. This is a special series, EFT Talk. We have a special trainer with us today, Michael Barnett. He is the founder and, and director of the Atlanta Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy out there in Atlanta, Georgia. He also specializes in trauma and addiction, and he has an upcoming study that's been three years in the making on the efficacy of um, EFT as a model of counseling for addictions. And you guessed it, our topic for today is EFT and addictions. <laughs> so we're gonna go ahead and jump right in. So Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, it's my pleasure, thank you for having me. All right, so tell me a little bit more. So one of the first things that comes to mind, um, I know, and probably a lot of folks watching this are gonna think, wait a second, when they talk about the contraindications for EFT, is an addiction one of those? So what would you kind of say to that? <laughs> oh, yes and no, to be real direct. So actually, that's a great question. And it was, at, it was one of the qualities of playing with an ambiguity in EFT. Um, when I learned the model back in the day, the contraindications were spoken of in a very, very clear-cut fashion. And if addiction was to show up, then we were actually not to work with addiction. My background prior to moving into private practice was working for about seven years in a variety of addiction treatment centers, some inpatient, some with adults, some with teenagers, and then some uh, intensive outpatient programs and some dual diagnosis programs. And the only reason I mention that is because I had a familiarity with working with addicts, with people who are struggling with a variety of addictions, and therefore, I get a lot of referrals uh, around addiction. And I started to have experiences clinically where I was working well with couples where somebody showed up on the addictive continuum and at the same time would read on the listserv about people very quickly turning couples away where addiction was showing up. And I thought, we have this amazing model and it really does work uh, with addiction. We have to tailor it, of course. And about Six or seven years ago, a colleague of mine, Jim Thomas, who's a trainer in Colorado, and I got together and started talking in a very enthusiastic way about working with addiction. He was having some similar experiences, although his background's very different from mine. And we created a training trying to help other EFT therapists work more adequately when addiction shows up in the consulting room. That's amazing. So you had a lot of experience with EFT. I really love how you said we have this amazing model at our fingertips. Why aren't we using it to treat? Yeah. So you also mentioned we have to tailor it. So let's say that an EFT therapist has a couple come in and somebody shows up with addiction. How would our work, um, how would the addiction fit into the model a little bit differently than couples that don't have addiction? Well, to just uh, zoom out from kind of doing the uh, in the trenches clinical work that we often do mm -hmm. and take a broader look. Uh, working with couples is difficult, as we all know. And uh, it, there are a lot of complexities because we're bringing two human beings who have an infinite number of experiences and perspectives and attachment realities into a world where they have to make sense of that together. So to start with, we have a lot of complexity. When you add addiction into the already complex nature of working with couples, all of a sudden we have an interesting brew. And addiction, depending upon where, it's usually one person, not both people, where that one partner is on the addictive continuum, 
we can have some really intense, almost co-occurring issues that pull us out of a way of using EFT the way we're traditionally taught in our trainings, externships and core skills. And we have to pay attention to the way addiction influences the cycle. We have to pay attention to the way addiction alters attachment strategies. We have to pay attention to the way addiction has altered a using partner's emotional processing and what that means for the relationship. And then there are, I think, infinitely more attachment injuries with addiction and trust issues. So all of a sudden we're working with something that our model works with well, but there are a lot of complexities to the very basic structure of what we're doing. Right. That's right. I love, so you mentioned trust, which reminds me is a, it's a big part of the addictive cycle because deception telling lies is a part of the addiction cycle in and of itself. So we would probably weave that into the cycles we're working with couples, but it sounds like the addiction really brings so many more layers. And I was actually having this discussion with someone else the other day, because I've heard a lot of therapists try to say, oh, it's mostly withdrawers that are addicts, but I don't think that's true at all. I have both pursuers and withdrawers in my practice who are addicts and they use it for very different reasons. It's like my pursuers use it to calm down and feel like they're more normal, takes like the edge off their anxiety, um, you know, keeps them from feeling like they're too much. But then I have withdrawers who use it to continue to numb out their emotions, right? It's just another aid and I don't want to get anywhere close to my emotions where maybe my pursuers are very in touch with their emotions, but, and maybe they use drugs to amplify some of their emotions, but um, I've seen both pursuers and withdrawers use them very differently. So could you speak more to that? Yeah, I, I may bring an additional frame to that. Um, Absolutely. I do say, I do think that more often than not, we see withdrawers, although pursuers also uh, use behaviors or substances. Um, and I do think that in both camps, people are using it to regulate emotion uh, and have learned skill sets, unfortunately, that revolve around loving others, not really being there to connect with, to process emotion, to make sense of emotion. Where I really see the biggest distinction actually is when we have a pursuer who happens to be a using partner. Um, I find much more, uh, uh, what, how would I like to put it? I was gonna say egregious, but that's not the word I wanna use. It's just much more dramatic display of emotion and attack and lashing out and with, with withdrawers, really just see people checking out, being much more irresponsible. Both can be irresponsible, but much more unavailable, I should say. So more often than not, though, I do see a, a withdrawer um, being the person who seems to target a self-self way of regulating affect. And when my, when my couples who present with a pursuer happen to have the addictive tendencies, um, I see these, again, much more dramatic displays of emotion, much more fighting happening with the couple, um, much more lashing out, and much more oftentimes chaotic process. Yeah, yeah, I love how you said, yeah, that's exactly it, is that, you know, they, they both are using it for emotion regulation, just yeah. shows up very differently in pursuers and withdrawers. Now, you just said something very interesting about withdrawers using it in a self-self kind of way. Can you explain that a little bit more, what you mean by self-self? Well, they both do, actually. So what we're trying to do is create a dyadic way of people 
regulating affect. If I get distressed and I'm really in a lot of pain and fear and I turn to you and I, directly and I say, this is what's happening for me. Uh, can we talk about it? Can you be with me in this? That's a very secure way of going about affect regulation, creating connection, having a really powerful resource, knowing that someone's in the world that has my back. I would have to say the vast majority of people who are struggling and really struggle with addiction and addictive processes have not had that latter experience is really knowing that someone's in the world to have their back. And the powerful thing about particularly substances and behaviors, but particularly substances is they're readily, readily available and they work fast, very, very fast. So if you are in a lot of distress and not only in lots of cases are loving others not there to offer you support, care, a sense of reassurance. When you reach out to calm yourself, smoke, drink, drug, whatever that might look like, it works very quickly. And unfortunately, the difference with, uh, between using particularly substances, in my opinion, um, than a, a, a basic avoidant strategy is all of a sudden these particular uh, strategies start to habituate and can cause a physical type of addiction that takes on a life of its own. It's very, very dangerous. So I hope I spoke to your question well. But. What kind of physical addiction would you say that can become very dangerous? What kind? Well, a an addiction to any substance gets pretty dangerous. Um, sure. You know, sure. The, the, oddly enough, there are only two uh, kind of substance categories that become very, very frightening when people use them. One of them, interestingly enough, is alcohol because people can have a lethal withdrawal. And so it's not unusual. Someone comes into, a couple comes into couples therapy and they want to kind of move toward having the uh, flight into health. And that partner says, I'm going to stop drinking, for example. I'm going to kind of curb this. And we find out this happened in supervision today. Somebody's been drinking four bottles of wine a night and that person stops drinking. They could really send themselves into a potentially fatal medical condition so they would require a medical detox. The other category of very dangerous types of addiction are the benzos, so Xanax, Valium, et cetera. And um, what's a big surprise is people will then talk about things like opiates. And those are not lethal withdrawals. Other people feel very, very sick. They feel terrible and almost will do anything to avoid that. So that becomes extremely dangerous. And all of a sudden, we're not just in a uh, psychotherapeutic world where we're working with uh, systemic cycles or really intense emotion. We have to take into medical, medical considerations into uh, perspective as well. That's a really interesting point. So, and, and there are some couples where one spouse does recognize that their addiction is a problem and maybe, you know, that's something that's triggered their entrance into couples counseling. You know, my wife finally put her foot down and said she's going to leave me if I don't quit and, and I've been wanting to quit. But what about in those couples where you have a partner who doesn't see their behavior as a problem. Um, and I find this more common when you're fighting addiction to things that are more socially acceptable, like pornography or weed <laughs> or mm. marijuana. So um, it, it can feel very much like an uphill battle and they, they tend to make their spouse the problem, their spouse's problem with their addiction as the problem rather than their behavior. So when you have a, a partner who's kind of in denial, how do you, frame that or I mean I want to say we want to help them recognize the impact on the relationship but how do we do so in a way that doesn't scare them away and make them feel like we're kind of pointing the shame finger at them 
Well, you're kind of asking two really important questions. So one, I would say starting with an alliance and safety, right? The shame finger piece. Because what I, I find very often is if we were to take the scenario you just painted, which is a very common one, a person's partner says, I'm done with this, right? You've got to quit doing X, Y, and Z, or I can't do this anymore. So they come in. One guy said to me, I, I initially felt like this was going to be couples court and I was going to be the guy on the stand. So really taking into consideration that a, per, a person's coming in already feeling like the identified patient, right? We have to pay great attention to making sure that our alliance feels very inclusive and safe for them because we are really going to be looking at not simply the addiction, but also, of course, the cycle, right? How their interactive dance is going to ultimately gain enough momentum to take over the, the pattern. So paying, paying exquisite attention to the alliance feels really important. I also learned a long time ago in uh, treatment centers, if you're not able to really engage with, with I'll just say addicts, uh, and I don't mean that term pejoratively, it's just an easier way to frame it. Um, people can sniff out BS a mile away. And so our ability to be very frank and engaged and in many ways be transparent is actually a huge, huge asset in keeping somebody safe and helping them engage in the process. Your other question is, I think one of the hardest things about using our model to work with addiction, and that is if somebody is literally refusing to acknowledge their using, um, we are looking at something, if I oversimplify it, that kind of speaks to when somebody will not take ownership of a step in the cycle. And then we really can't take uh, refuge in using the systemic work, working well with the cycle that we know how to do so well, right? All of a sudden there's an impasse and there are different ways of, of quote unquote breaking denial. When I worked in treatment centers, it was clobbering people with shame. And it still may be that way, you know, cracking the hard nut of denial and we're gonna confront the heck out of this person till they give. And I have to say, it was heartbreaking watching this happen in adolescent treatment centers. You'd see people who were really not qualified to be doing certain types of psychotherapy, but they were clean, just hammering some of these kids mercilessly. And there's research that shame is going to lead to relapse pretty predictably. Yeah. So all that being said, we set the stage for safety. And if we can really help kind of start clearing the decks a bit so people's attachment processes are online, and what I specifically mean is Addiction can be a very self-absorbed process. And a partner who is a using partner may be very devoid of really getting the impact that's having on the person they genuinely love. And if we can kind of clear the decks so that their attachment system is more online, we create a lot of safety, lots of validation, and their partner begins to talk more about their pain. Jim and I used to call this creating a loving intervention as a way of intervening with denial. Rather than having to kind of crack the nut with shame or intense confrontation. So that's one tack. The other tack is I think we can use our work with cycles very, very well, but it feels very slippery. That I sometimes feel like trying to help an addicted partner really, really own their step in the cycle is like picking up mercury. You get so close to it, and then there's a smokescreen of chaos. And so our ability to really shift and tailor some of the model, like there's a certain way I would go about working with a couple stuck there, um, that ultimately brings the using behavior online. What I often get is someone uses, their partner takes issue with it, partner, the using partner kind of becomes evasive. The non-using partner gets really angry, let's say, 
protests. Protests, and then that becomes the focus. Look what an ogre you are, right? There's all this projection and minimization, and all of a sudden, no one's talking about addiction anymore. They're talking about this whole other thing, and we lose sight of the fact that this whole conflict, again, was organized around addiction. So what I've been trying to do is help my supervisees and people who are in training with me start to identify ways of moving really back to what started some of the dance here, which is oftentimes my partner went out and drank again. And guess what? I was supposed to go out of town and had to stay home with the kids and can't go out of town because of that. Can't, I had a, a job out of town or a presentation, that kind of thing. So I hope that speaks a bit to it. I think it's one of the most common things that we're up against uh, in EFT is helping actually put addiction into the cycle so a using partner is actually owning their step. That, that's so hard work. Yeah, so part, of, so part of what I hear you saying when we're working with addiction, especially early in stage one, is we're going to put the behaviors into the cycle, which could be, you know, including the partner's protest. So maybe, and I, I actually have this on my intake form about video games. And video games is one of the toughest addictions that I have for my, for my video game users to recognize mm -hmm. as an addiction. Oh, but we only play like, you know, once a week for three hours. It's not once a week for three hours. It's every night, you know, and the spouses are like, you go down there. It's a total competing attachment. You go to your little video game cave, you know, so I kind of bring that out and put that into the cycle. So maybe, you know, let's say pursuer comes home, wants to spend time and, you know, uh, withdrawing partner goes to play video games. It's a hobby. Um, and then eventually, you know, surpasses the time, agreed upon time limit for playing. And then pursuer comes down and starts to protest. And then withdrawer gets angry and they have a cycle around that. And, you know, so I would, I kind of put the, the using or the substance as like the content issue and track the cycle that way that's yeah. helpful but it's yeah. it i just find so much denial you know especially in video games is one of the hardest ones pornography is another because society says it's okay you know i'm not doing anything wrong even though your partner is in great distress well and so the video game one is so easily condoned right and also it can be so easily minimized and to kind of dovetail off of somewhat your some of what you're saying you said kind of focus on the content but basically using that as a cue for the partner or, or an endpoint of an emotional experience for in this case the video game using partner what would amount to what would be happening internally especially you said something really important we had an agreement right and there's an attachment thing we were on the same page so i thought we had this agreement it was only going to be an hour a night and here it is you've broken our agreement that we decided together as a team what does our team mean right so the non-using partner can get extremely hurt in very personal ways that have to do with the relationship so we want to explore for the using partner the video game using partner in this case what is the sequence how is that organized from emotional um, realities, right? What is the end point that this person knows? We have an agreement and yet I'm going to keep using, I'm going to keep doing this thing, even if my partner is incredibly distressed. So that's, I mean, when you were saying that, it really kind of struck me in that way. The porn thing is much more complicated because I have found that perhaps 
society and culture condones that. And it seems to me that anything of a sexual nature more often than not seems to have a more um, potent impact on the relationship. So when people are using porn, even though it is condoned um, culturally to some degree or socially to some degree, I would have to say here, I don't know how, how much it's condoned. I just see so much hurt come from that. Sure. Well, yeah. just, you know, everybody does it, you know, you know, there's something wrong with a man if he doesn't look at pornography. I mean, that's a lot of the attitudes that kind of spill into our offices. Yeah. It's, it's so normalized by society. And, you know, a lot of partners don't, don't like it. They don't go for it. And it right. is very cool. Very, right? It, it is so personal. But what is it about them that you don't see in me? Why would you be turning to that rather than me? We haven't been sexual in months or years and yet you're using pornography regularly what an incredible what an incredibly deep hurt that becomes right that one is i think particularly insidious um because of what it means personally the meaning is usually so deep and so immediate to the video game one we can read into it using an attachment frame pretty well i mean given our training but pornography and other types of sexual um addictions just they cut right to the core so quickly, so immediately. And I, I think that that's a really loaded one. Yeah. I find the other difficult aspect of addiction is not the ones who, you know, necessarily come from a background of trauma, but somehow got into addiction as a chasing pleasure kind of thing. And now they're just constantly chasing pleasure. And, you know, it's, it's, seems a lot less or maybe in some cases a little more difficult to break because they're chasing that pleasure versus numbing out. I mean, I feel like I've had an easier time with the folks that recognize they're numbing and they're using the alcohol to mm -hmm. numb, but then, mm -hmm. you know, folks that grew up in homes where their parents were available and they did have love, but, you know, maybe they went off to college and they started experimenting with their fraternity or whatever. And then it just created this whirlwind and it was just fun. And it, you know, and now they're chasing fun. <laughs> and that's how would you kind of work with that? Well, I would say the good news about that, and there's a ton of research to support this is when that is the case and people have relatively secure backgrounds, um, and addiction becomes a real problem, in this case, of course, in the relationship, because that's who they're, they're coming to see us. Um, it requires relatively little treatment to get people back off of uh, using in such a way that it's threatening the relationship. If it's simply chasing pleasure, and it really isn't about regulating affect or worse, right, regulating traumatic, unresolved traumatic affect, um, more often than not, I'll offer kind of a, a prescriptive intervention and I'll just say, why don't, we, why don't you try to see if for the next, let's say 30 days, you just kind of table that and see how that goes. And people are usually pretty readily available for that and it goes relatively well. Um, if people can't do that, my gut tells me this isn't about chasing pleasure. This has become something else. This is about regulating affect. And now this person is not using, and guess what they're starting to feel? And it is terrifying. 
Yeah. You know, this chaotic world of emotion. My partner is kind of uh, stirring stuff up for me and this ambiguity in our, you know, social interaction is really overwhelming. That's not, that becomes something else. And I think more often than not, that's what we're seeing in our offices. Yeah. Now that you say that though, I do think of it, I have quite a few clients whose professional job, they're one of those high stress, like maybe they work for the police department or their firemen and, you know, had to numb out emotions and so they turn to addiction to they that's the only way they can penetrate the numbness to feel happiness is to use some kind of euphoria inducing substance because they're so numb exactly or just too numb right i mean one guy said to me i live in your basic suburban neighborhood i have the white picket fence you know and two kids and blah 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 but i'm also the police uh the fire chief and I have spent so many times seeing atrocities that my neighbor next door at their little gathering would never in a million years be able to fathom. So yeah, I have a few beers and right, just take off that edge uh, because again, I hear that as I'm regulating traumatic affect. Yeah. Right. I don't really have people to talk to. We use kind of gallows humor when we're at the fire station, but no one talks about how hard this really is. And then I have to be responsive to my wife, right? Especially in the fire department, um, particularly, I found that drinking is a huge part of the camaraderie and the culture. And yeah. it's really hard to fight against that. It's like, yeah. but all my bodies want to go out and drink, you know? You find that in business too, right? People are in sales and they're taking out their clients and it's a huge yeah. part of the culture and trans- business transactions. And then someone is getting too far or too deep in, right? They're becoming genuinely alcoholic and their relationship is going off the rails, even if they're selling well. It's a really hard thing when it gets integrated into a culture like that. I mean, that, yeah. that is an uncommon thing for us to encounter in our practices, right? And I find that so much. I love how you said, you know, um, part of the business transactions. I have a lot of folks, you know, entertainers, you know, CEOs, uh, realtors, you know, they're schmoozling people and networking <laughs> and that's a huge part of it. And we take, you know, the, the people we want to do business with, you know, we take them out and have drinks and, and we do more business when we drink. And so how would you kind of put that into the cycle when you're working with somebody who comes in with a kind of culturally advocated drinking lifestyle. <laughs> so um, the reality is when that person comes into our offices, right, they're with their partner. And so we're going to be paying more attention to how this is relevant to what's happening in the dance between the two of them that's destabilizing their relationship. So there will be something very relevant and very concrete about that. But as you're talking, maybe I could use that as an appraisal. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine what will happen at work if I don't use, if I don't drink with everybody else. Am I going to be able to make this sale or that sale? I'm not sure what would happen. What I start to hear there is if I started to heighten that and engage that, there are probably some fears there, right? There probably would be some fears. But people might say... Just a little bit? That's interesting. Yeah, so I might say, okay, so there's this moment, even though you see him or her partner getting very upset about using and i'm hearing you say it's really hard for me right there's this moment where i pick up and oftentimes it's at work you know i'm going to go close this 
deal. So tell me more. So there's this moment that you guys get into a really tricky spot. And right now you're seeing the distress in her eyes, right? And oftentimes you might use, but help me understand more of that moment, you know, and I would start to unpack that. And if part of why this person was saying, I hear her saying, I don't want you to drink. I, I want things to be better here, but there's this thing that starts running through my head. What about next Friday where I have this huge deal to close? And that's, I just want to kind of stay very proxy voice, present process with this person to start looking into the underlying fears. If, let's just say, this person were able to go with me and they engage their fears and I was really holding them in that, I might say, when all this comes for you, might this be a time that you would drink or consider drinking? They would probably say yes. And now we have a primary emotional experience that's very directly related to an action tendency, right? An action tendency now of drinking to regulate affect. And I might say, well, I know she's well aware of that part of you will go pick up the next beer, but I don't know how much she's aware of your fear. I'm wondering if you can turn and share with her about that fear that seems to prime this ongoing sense of drinking. And maybe I create a really lovely enactment between the two of them, and then I'm going to paint the walls with that, right? Here you had an alternative, which in stage two, we do a lot of that in EFT. We create the alternative very explicitly. Wow. I've never heard it put that way. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's the heart of what we do. That's the heart of what we're trying to do here, right? Yeah. You know, nature's way, of course, is for us to reach and lean in. And not all of us have had that experience. Not all of EFT therapists have had that experience. Yeah. And addiction can so override our attachment system simply because neurobiologically, it shares the same reward uh, reward pleasure uh, circuitry is the brain, right? Yeah. So it's very insidious. It's one of the things I say in my trainings is that every single thing in nature that feels good to us is really good for our personal, emotional, biological well-being, except for addiction. Yeah. If you think about it, you know, it, it's really true. If I'm yeah. hungry and I eat, it feels really good, right? If I'm scared and I reach and I get responsiveness, it feels really good. If I use, it feels really good. And if I get addicted, it keeps feeling really good. And guess what? I stop reaching to people. And now this other process has taken me over. So the only reason I mention that right now is because the way I was tracking that with you a second ago would be bringing the dyadic way of regulating affect in our relationships back online, right? The whole, just sculpting the attachment reality there experientially. Yeah. I, I do find also beneath the heart of a lot of addicts, when you kind of go a little bit below the surface, there's a lot of you self stuff at work. And that I find I can access pretty easily and use that as something that prompts the addictive behavior, especially, well, I mean, like we said, a lot of it with emotion regulation. I have quite a few couples where the addicted spouse has social anxiety and uses, you know, substance, alcohol, or marijuana to feel like they can interact with other people. And so, you know, so much view of self underneath there is like, I'm not good enough. How are, you know, people going to perceive me? Um, and that can become a part of it too. Big time. I, I would say that is, you're underscoring the heart of it. There's view of self and there's a lot of shame. And I also find more often than not, even if it's lowercase t, I shouldn't even say even if, when it is lowercase t rather than capital T trauma, it's a ton of trauma underneath addiction, a ton. I, I see them very, very related. And there's some ways of tailoring 
the EFT model to work well with trauma that we do in addiction as well. So one of the tricky things in my experience has been that as we start to engage our couples or particularly the using partner, this becomes extremely difficult territory because the thing that we are so well trained in, which is how we engage people with emotion, can be terrifying. And all of a sudden, we're off the rails. So the things that we are being taught and the things that we're teaching others and the heart of our model in terms of engaging emotion and seeing how emotion organizes everything, that, that in itself can be very, very tricky territory and very delicate work with addiction in no, in no small way because of what you're saying that the associated view of self, working models, right? And lots and lots of shame seem to make people very um, averse to getting in touch with emotion. It's terrifying in so many different ways. That sounds like we have to go probably just as slow with addiction, you know, depending on the case as we would with trauma because suddenly now, you know, we're taking away the addiction and asking people to feel when they haven't been feeling, you know, and for them feeling is a scary thing. And that's why they've been using addictions in one way or another because of whatever they feel underneath. So we have to go really slow because some of them, you know, I've had some addicts where (laughs) even just, you know, like the second or third couple session, I just asked about what it was like to feel their emotions. And I had one client who came back and said he was just wrecked just by that one question. (laughs) that's how traumatizing his own emotions were but you know and looking at the kinds of experiences that he's had it it makes perfect sense to me and again that is also one of the cores of the EFT model is making sense and so if we can make sense of our addicts internal world and why it's so painful to feel their emotions and then again we pull in how they how they turn to addiction instead of their partner and put all that into the cycle we can help them feel you know, like we're with them. We may not validate the addictive behavior, but we can validate the emotions underneath and make sense of that. And oftentimes that can help with the partner because the partner also has no idea of, of the addict's inner world. And That's yeah. That's why we have to create so much safety, you know, going back to where we started our conversation, mm-hmm. right? An addict comes in not only feeling like the identified patient, but the very work that we do is engaging people with emotion, which has been the very thing that most people who are using don't want to feel at all, right? And so we, we are so uh, intensely validating about that part of the experience. Lots of attaboys, lots of attagirls, right? Every step of the way, making explicit what they just did, able to get in touch with this thing you can't find any words for. It's scary. You found the words. Not only did you do that, you turned and shared it with your partner. And did you see how he responded to you? He just responded and said, all these lovely things. We're painting the walls constantly to organize the new experience and give it a huge contrast to the using experience and continue to invite it along, coax somebody along from so much validation and painting the positive picture of what's happening. And it's slow work, to your point. It's very slow work. I love that, painting the walls. So that's part of the making the implicit explicit and really putting it out there everywhere for them to see, look at how awesome you just did, you know, look Mm -hmm. at this awesome thing that you just did, or look at how wonderful this is. And really, I love that painting the walls with it. That's such a cool metaphor. (laughs) Well, just like when couples come in and they can, can't really tell you about their cycle. They can just say, we get in this thing and it feels awful. And we help them organize what all that is to the cycle. When people have taken a reach and we've done perhaps a really nice enactment, 
we speak about the process, right, of what they just did in a new way. And even though it feels really nice, they may not know what just happened. So we want to organize that by painting the walls, we're extremely validating, but we're naming all the new steps that this person just took in order to connect with a partner. Maybe not even naming any of the content of the enactment itself, but naming what they just did. And my sense is with lots of repetition across sessions, people hear it again and again and again and again, and they start getting a playbook. Hey, there's this new way I don't have to use, right? I can feel this turn to my partner. Guess what? He really likes it when I do that. And this is going well. I'm not ending up in the doghouse again or, you know, hurting my, the person I love's feelings again or feeling those awful views of self again, right? There's a, there's a lot that's happening there. And I love how you, you mentioned the being repetitive, which, you know, is something that I know a lot of um, newer EFTers struggle with is the repetitive nature of some of the cycle work. But it's so important to be repetitive because each time we repeat the process, the client is able to digest it a little bit more and more and more. Because at the beginning, they're just maybe even not able to digest it. And then they're able to get a little bit and a little bit, you know, and maybe non-addicts are able to get more of it faster, but people with trauma and addiction, yes. you know, where their threshold is so small, it's going to take more and more slower and slower because they're only going to be able to digest very small chunks. And we want to make those chunks edible for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> edible chunks. Yeah. <laughs> it also keeps organizing it, right? A first pass might not organize it well. We, a second pass, they hear it again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Third pass, oh yeah, I, I'm getting that. This connects with that and that connects with it. When I feel this, this is what comes up in my head. This is what I end up doing, right? We start getting it. And also if I feel this and I turn directly to my partner and my partner is consistently really connected with me and affirmative, that's a good thing to know too. Right? So ordering the good stuff as well as the acts of the native cycle well but we're creating an alternative we're, we're creating to nature's alternative to addiction right and yeah. i think our model does that beautifully. it's just to your point i loved it when you said it's slow going and it is slow going yeah. for some of the reasons you've been mentioning emotion is really hard with people who've been taking the volume knob and turning it all the way down their whole lives oh yeah all of a sudden we're turning it back up and they're going oh my gosh what is this this is really scary stuff yeah. and now i feel and i don't feel good about myself and now what am i going to do with all that yeah so there's yeah. a lot happening I really like that. If we can kind of conceptually think of treating addiction with EFT the same way we think of trauma going so slow, then yes. it's a lot easier for people to realize, okay, I don't have to send them away when they show up with addiction. I can still work with this. And, you know, you might be stuck in, in stage one for a lot longer, but, you know, and sometimes I feel like it's much more profound and and some of the coolest work that you'll do with couples because you see so much of a growth mm -hmm. happen you know back in the day i had a training called in quotes it's not just stage one because everybody's in such a hurry to get to stage two a lot is happening there right we're helping people learn how to tolerate emotion by going into emotion every session we're organizing the cycle we're finding a new way of understanding addiction so it it, it is a much slower process and it's a super super valuable process and um, there can be some interesting twists and turns as a result of addiction. It's, it's, it's definitely harder work yeah. and, and very related to trauma, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, oftentimes because trauma is the reason for the addiction. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what we're going to do is if somebody comes in with EFT, we're going to look at, you know, in stage one, we're going to look at putting both the using behavior 
in the cycle, we're going to try to see if we can identify the triggers for the using behavior, which oftentimes is some emotional cue. And right. we're going to weave that in with their partner's response and start to organize this. And we'll, we'll get to try to get to a lot of view of self, which will come out, I think, oftentimes in the assessment as well. You know, tell me about when you started turning off your emotions. When did they become dangerous? <laughs> you yeah. know, um, and, you know, signs for people, you know, if they have to take extreme measures to feel happy is often an indication that they're feeling numb. So find out about the numbness and, yeah. you know, put all this into the cycle. And as we get into stage two, I love how you said, you know, we're going to start painting the walls and, and even in stage one, we'll do that, but mm -hmm. we're going to start showing the alternative and That's EFT right. brilliantly does that. And Wow, there's so much, so much um, great stuff here. Now, you offer trainings, right? I do. Um, just interestingly enough, this coming Friday, I'm offering uh, a two-day training in Seattle that's a master class on EFT and addiction. And from the study that you mentioned early on, I learned so much clinically about working with addiction. So even if the results, once they're analyzed, uh, do not necessarily knock the ball off, out of the park? They may. I have no idea what that's going to show. Um, I learned, and the group that we were working with learned so much clinically. So this new training really operationalizes working with addiction in a brand new way. It's very different than the old trainings from contraindication. And there are some contraindications with using, we did, you and I didn't talk about it, to how to assess differently, to how to integrate it into the cycle and externalize addiction. Also, some of the distinctions in working with sta in stage two. So to really operationalize for people um, who are working with couples where addiction shows up, how to actually do it. So um, I'll be in New Orleans in, uh, at the end of August doing um, another uh, addiction training. And then next year I will be in Montana and um, Vancouver and Boca Raton throughout the year. And also doing some trauma trainings. Um, in October, I'll be in Phoenix with Dr. Sylvina Irwin doing a, a training on how we tailor the model to work well with trauma and a lot of self the therapist work in that. And we will be doing two or three of those next year that we're trying to work out the details on. Oh, excellent. So just real quickly, while you touched on the um, contraindications, could you briefly touch on what some of those might be? Yeah, I'd love to. You know, I was, as we've been talking, I was thinking, I hope people aren't getting the impression that we always work with addiction. We don't. And you asked a great question early on. What if someone really cannot acknowledge their step and we really hit that genuine impasse? At a certain point, if people and all of our good clinical skills do not really help that person take ownership in a way that's meaningful, um, then we really can't move past stage one and we would probably have to make a, some kinds of referrals out. So that's one part. Um, sometimes this doesn't happen much in private practice, but I saw a lot of this in treatment centers where people start to have organic issues, you know, in, in their brains because of so much using. And one of two things, some of that is irreparable. Sometimes people need medical detox and a treatment and, and time to clear out um, before really approaching therapy. Um, the main thing is always about safety. And so if we're working with a couple and the using partner, especially if there have been tremendous uh, relational injuries throughout the process, if that using partner continues to relapse, we'll never be able to make it safe for the non-using partner. And that would be a contraindication as well. 
So we're always, just like with all contraindications, looking for safety. Is the therapy itself going to be something that can create safety? And is there safety for doing the kind of work that we do, which is always about engaging somebody in a vulnerable way? If I engage a non-using partner in a vulnerable way and they reach to a partner who may or may not be there because they're going to be relapsing a lot, that's not safe, right? So it's those kinds of determinations we want to watch. So if we can't create safety, that would be a really strong contraindication. That, that is the contraindication. That's it. And that looks like different things. All right. So tell us how we can find you. So if we want to track down your trainings, or maybe we'd like to invite you to come to our area and do a training, how do we find you? Um, you could go on to, there are two different websites. One is michaelbarnettlpc.com. And the other is eftatlanta.com, which is the Atlanta Center for EFT's website. So my trainings are always posted on both of those, and generally the ISEFT website uh, varies shortly thereafter. Perfect. And I will make sure that I put the link to your websites in the description for this video on YouTube so that folks can get access to that. And yeah, I mean, it sounds like some really great work that you're doing, some very important work. I have very faith and confidence in the results of your studies. <laughs> so we're excited to see that coming. And, you know, thank you again, Michael, so much for being on our series, for talking to us today about EFT and addictions. And I really look forward to attending one of your trainings. Guys, I hope that you look up Michael and that you'll find one of his trainings across the states. And of course, as always to our watchers, make sure that you continue to watch and stay subscribed because more episodes are on the way.